You're listening to I Am Here. Hello and welcome, Ree. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. So, Ree, you are the GM host, Blades in the Dark extraordinaire (laughs) (laughs) of the Magpies podcast. Yes. So the Magpies podcast is a Blades in the Dark actual play podcast that you are the host and GM of. Mm -hmm. You do all the editing, all the planning. You are the main person behind the show. Yes. (laughs) Let's just talk about the show first, then. What inspired you to do Blades in the Dark versus, I suppose, any other number of RPGs out there? Yeah, so I came across Blades in the Dark when it was like on Kickstarter years ago. And just like looking through it, uh, you know, a lot of times like when I look at, you know, I, I find a new RPG and I'm looking through it. I first start thinking about like, oh, man, this would be super cool to play and the carrying of characters I could play. Blades in the Dark was one of the very few systems where I picked it up and was like, I want to GM this. I want to run this system. So I I ran a few games for my group of friends here in Chicago, but I it, it just it's such a uh, one I love running the game, and two it's just such a cool setting, and you can tell some very interesting stories in it and i just felt like there there is a lot of blades in the dark like twitch streams out there but to the best of my knowledge there's not a ton of other um ap podcasts so i was like you know what there there's a niche here (laughs) that i could fill or at least you know find my way into yeah it's i've just i think that that was it's just a system that i i really really enjoy GMing because with a lot of other systems like even if if I GM for a while I eventually get to the point like man I really wish I was playing this (laughs) so I just get kind of burned out but with Blades I just really love running it so I I can be kind of committed to GMing this for the long haul. I think that's really evident in the actual show. I love Magpies. Oh thank you. I'm all caught up and it's so obvious in how you interact with your players and how you tell your stories, how much you love the the world and the system. And I had the pleasure of playing Blades in the Dark with you just like last week. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Which was amazing uh, because I had never played it and had wanted to play it for so long and we got to play together. And man, before I went into it, I was like, okay, I think I've got a handle on like the world and the rules. I think I get this. And then it was incredible because the way you know the world inside and out, like I've barely scratched the surface and it was really, it was really neat. I could tell in playing with you how much you love the system. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I, I, I like the kind of industrial fantasy setting that it's a, a nice change of pace from the sort of traditional pseudo medieval, you know, Dungeons and Dragons style setting, which I say that as somebody who came into RPGs in D&D 3.5. So like, I do love that stuff. But I also <laughs> like some variety and some other approaches to things. So yeah, yeah, it's a very, it's a very fun system with a lot of really cool mechanics. <laughs> oh, yeah, it, it absolutely is. So so you mentioned that you came into RPGs playing Dungeons and Dragons. And 3.5. Hey, I tried 3.5 in one <laughs> session and was like, nope, nope, not for me. That's, that's, that's fair. <laughs> it just seemed so complex. Like there was so much addition. Mm-hmm. There was so much math. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But tell me about that. It, so it might have tech, it, it might have actually been 3.0. Cause I, I started playing my, my first gaming group was, and as I tell this story, I feel like I've, I've, I've told this to a few people and I feel like this story makes the fact that I, I am still in RPGs like really kind of astounding because I had a very poor introduction to, to the world of, of tabletop RPGs. My first group, uh, I was, I think 15 or so, 15 or 16. And 
there was a couple boys that I had gone to grade school with who, like, our families were still friends, so I was still in touch with them. And they were like, hey, we're starting a D&D group with some guys from our school. Do you want to join? And, you know, I was in enough kind of nerdy circles in the very early internet back then that I was like, Dungeons and Dragons, I've heard of that. Sure, why not? <laughs> couple things to know here. Uh, the boys in question were, you know, one teenage boys in a kind of generally conservative area who were all attending an all-boys Catholic high school. Oh. So our, you know, weekend D&D sessions, I was kind of the only girl that I, they were not related to that they interacted with on a regular basis. So it was... Not probably not as bad as as it could have been, but it it was not great. I didn't really learn how to play the game because they just kind of did everything for me. Hmm. I'm pretty sure that they like fudged rolls in my favor. I guess they were afraid that like if I if I rolled badly ever I would leave. <laughs> there was there was one guy who did that really I, for, I, I hope this is a, a less common thing but I feel like I, I heard about it a lot when I was kind of first getting into it of like uh, a male player is playing a female PC who is a lesbian because it would be really gross for him to be playing someone who's attracted to guys uh. yeah and the the sort of crown on this whole thing was one of the guys in the group got really romantically interested in me and I think we went on one date because I felt like that was what you were supposed to do because I, again, was like 16 um, and then was like, mm, no, this isn't working out. And he proceeded to kind of low key stalk me for the rest of high school, even after I stopped. Like, I only stayed in that game for a handful of sessions because it very quickly got very uncomfortable. And I was like, uh, I'm suddenly busy every Saturday for the rest of my life. Sorry. Bye. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it was a it was not a great introduction to RPGs, but the the even with all of that nonsense, something about the I could tell it had potential. <laughs> <laughs> I could tell that that there was something cool here. And fortunately, like my senior year of high school, another group of friends um who it was still a group of all guys, but they were like decent human beings who treated me like a person with respect. Right. They started a D&D group and had me join and like actually taught me how to play the game and you know, we we had a pretty good time. Um we weren't able to play a ton because we were all very busy with like college applications and jobs and schoolwork, but that was a much more positive experience and then I moved to Chicago for college and met some people through some you know, of the various like clubs and stuff and mentioned that I played D&D &D in high school. And they're like, oh, we've got a group. We've got a D&D &D group. We're about to start a new campaign. Do you want to join? And I've been friends with them ever since. That was when that was like over a decade ago now. <laughs> and yeah, it's just been like steady improvement ever since. But my uh, my introduction to to the world of RPGs was not not the best, but I it, it really has just been like getting better and better <laughs> the longer <laughs> that I've been in it. So yeah, you know, it's interesting that you still saw potential in it and were willing to go back to it and try it again. Lots of people once they try or once they have a bad experience, it takes them a really long time to get back to it. So it's really interesting that that still appealed to you. And I think I think that the online community has really also impacted and changed the way people perhaps interact with RPGs for the first time. Because when you were younger, when you were, you know, 15, and the internet was still in its early days, kind of the same thing with me, I'm a bit older, but yeah, I think that the introduction to RPGs is like, oh, that seems interesting. I'm going to look it up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or I don't quite know how to play this game. I'm going to look it up. And then maybe you find tons of other games or you find like really clear rules or you can be introduced to RPGs via Twitch streams, via podcasts. Yeah, yeah. And that's a really neat thing because I think that we can shape that first interaction, that first exposure 
for other people by the stories that we tell and how we tell them. Yeah. And the other thing that like for me has been a huge thing with um, RPGs is like, I'm no longer limited to the people that I'm in physical proximity to. I don't have to put up with that obnoxious group of high school boys <laughs> because yes. they're the only people who play D&D in my area. And like my my group of friends from college, like we had some absolutely amazing games that we played together. They they have been a great group, but we're all in our 30s now. Uh, and it turns out that like you hit your, you know, late 20s, early 30s, mid 30s, scheduling games becomes very difficult because we have all of these obligations. So unfortunately, like we have a hard time getting together one Sunday every other month for a board game night. We can't right. really do a long running campaign. Right. But I can get a group of people together online every other week and we can play an RPG together. That's where I've been really lucky to have met so many wonderful and supportive people online who, when I say I want to play a game, uh, like our friend Chris was like, oh, you've never played it and you want to play it? I will get this going for you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and shout out to Chris because he's amazing. He and is just, the best. He is. He's a delight. He's wonderful. Chris plays uh, Graham on Mouse Guardians. Yes. And he's going to have a... I'm not sure when this episode will come out relative to to his guest appearance on the Magpies, but he's in he's got a guest appearance on the Magpies. <laughs> yes, I'm so excited for that. Yeah. I I, I wish I could listen to it sooner than when it's <laughs> scheduled. <laughs> yeah, that's that's one of the the really hard things with the way that I've I've kind of set up my editing schedule is that I have a buffer of about six episodes, which is like really nice because then I don't have to stress about like I'm editing the episode right before it goes out. I have, you know, a lot of downtime. If we need to skip a session, it's not going to completely throw off the whole schedule. On the other hand, like I'm six episodes ahead. So I'm like, oh man, these cool things are happening and (laughs) I can't talk about them. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the online world just opens up so many possibilities. And, you know, you're talking about Kickstarter and scene games. When I was younger and first getting into RPGs, the only RPG I had ever heard of was Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, yeah. I hadn't ever heard of anything else. And nowadays, it's like you hear about all these awesome games through Kickstarter, like Blades in the Dark. Mm -hmm. Kickstarter has really opened up the possibilities for indie game designers to get momentum on their work. And even those who don't use Kickstarter, you're seeing people publishing their RPGs on their own for a couple dollars or for free, or like releasing it as a public document for playtesting while they work in the background to see how they can kickstart it in the future. And that's a really neat thing about the intersection of the internet and RPGs. Because it's something I would have never imagined possible when I was younger. Yeah, I I think one thing that I really love is, and I I feel like this is something that absolutely really could have only happened with the internet, is all the little micro RPGs that pop up that like the one pagers, like, you know, I think one of the best known ones is Honey Heist. Yeah. But there's just, there's so many of these, you know... I know um, James D'Amato on the One Shot Network has done like, you know, millennial apartment hunters and millennials are killing these things that he just like, (laughs) you know, they're really short, have very simple mechanics, like the the rules are a couple pages. But yeah, there's just, I love those. And I feel like they really like, you can't do that if you're not able to put it online. Because like, how are you going to distribute that? Like, I guess you could do a like do a zine or do a mailing list or something. But like, that isn't really cost effective when you're like, okay, I have a a single sheet of paper (laughs) that I now have, you know, like, the the cost of mailing it out is going to be and, you know, telling people about it is going to be kind of prohibitive. Um, But now it's like, I threw together some rules, I put them online, have fun. Yeah. And these micro RPGs also like hit a niche, a very needed area of like, I want to be able to pick up and play in one night with my friends, kind of like a board game, but I can't get my friends together in person to play a board game. Yeah. But I don't want to do a campaign and I don't want to read an entire rule book to do a one shot. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So they've really like these micro RPGs that are coming out are brilliant. And they hit like this perfect, perfect spot in the RPG market. Yes. Yeah. We can just be like, we all managed to get together. 
for once and we want to play an rpg so let's just do something where we can like learn the rules in five minutes yeah and then get to playing yeah exactly so i guess what did you move on to from from D &D third 3.5 how did you begin to explore other rpgs so i was really only doing D &D 3.5 for a while like most of college i think i knew that there were other systems out there but I just, I didn't really investigate him that much. I wasn't really all that interested. Like I knew about stuff like uh, Warhammer and, you know, I knew about that as like, okay, it's people who like obsessively paint miniatures. And I'm like, that's, that's cool if that's what you're into, but it's not what I'm into. And it, it honestly wasn't really until I started listening to the campaign podcast that Cat Cool does um, on the One Shot Network that I was like, oh, okay, this is like, you know, the edge of the empire uh, system. I was like, okay, this is like very, it, it was a good kind of transition for me because the, the FFG Star Wars system is also a fairly rules heavy, crunchy system. So it felt familiar to me. I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. Like this, this makes sense. But, um, from there, I kind of started to like listen to stuff on the one shot network where they're just doing hundreds of different RPGs. And then I was just kind of like, oh my god, there's this whole world of possibility out here. <laughs> you know, it was like I'd been eating Cheerios my whole life and then somebody like dropped me into the cereal aisle at the store and I was like, whoa, Lucky Charms, <laughs> Cinnamon Toast Crunch. That's the best analogy. Because, <laughs> um, yeah, and like, I, I do say this is like, I, I still, I love d and I'm actually in uh, a fifth edition game right now. I, I still have a very fond spot in my heart for 3.5 because, <laughs> like, for all of its flaws, it was what brought me into this world. And yeah. so I'm, I am always going to love it for that. I say as I'm looking at my, uh, my collection of 3.5 rule books <laughs> on my shelf. Yeah, so I, I get that feeling. You can't help but love the thing that really got you into the hobby because it's such a wonderful hobby. Yes, yeah. It really is. Yeah, but like I also have like next to my D&D books, I have a couple Edge of the Empire books and Masks and City of Mist, which I backed on Kickstarter and haven't gotten to play ever. <laughs> um, and then my, you know, my hard drive is just laden with PDFs from RPGs that I've, I've bought, uh, you know, and backed and haven't played. I, I have a, I have a real problem where like I'll, I'll hear about a cool new RPG. I will back it. I will get it. I will read through the materials and be like, this is so awesome. I'm never going to have a chance to play it. <laughs> My RPG schedule is about as booked up as it can be. Because uh, like, <laughs> I've, I've had to turn down invites to some games because I'm like, I would, I would love to play in this game. But I have a podcast that has to get edited. <laughs> I need a few nights a week where I can just do that. Yeah, for sure. So let's go back to, I guess, any game that you, you GM. What inspires you to GM? Oh, hmm. <laughs> so prior to running into Blades in the Dark, I had had some fairly ill-fated attempts at uh, GM or DMing for for D and D, and they 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 were ill-fated for for a couple reasons. One was that I was a brand new baby DM and had very little idea what I was doing. Um, and I made that very common mistake that a lot of brand new GMs make, which is I have this beautiful story in my head and the players are going to move through this story and it will be awesome and everyone will think I'm brilliant. And then the first session happens and I had this whole political intrigue plot set up and rather than like going through this whole like kingmaker campaign that I had, my players were like, well, screw this. Th this place is really classist. Let's go to the lower city and start a revolution. And I was like, I, I, I did, but I have all of this like complex political stuff happening over here. What are you guys doing? So those games tended to end because I would just kind of stop running them because I would get really discouraged. Right. The, one of the things about uh, Blades in the Dark is that it, it's designed to be very low prep for the GM. Like, I have had times where I've come in to a Blades in the Dark session and been like, I have no idea what you guys are doing tonight. Like, 
you guys just tell me what you're what you're doing and I will throw down the tracks in front of the train. With with the magpies I do because it's a, you know, a longer running narrative. I do a little more planning, but not nearly the level that you do in a a D&D campaign, for example. Right. So one, like having blades set up as something where it's more player led than GM led was really appealing to me. I think more recent editions of D&D have gotten better about this, but 3-5 wasn't exactly setting up the DM and players as antagonistic to each other, but I don't feel like it really encouraged a ton of collaboration either. Whereas Blades in the Dark, like, it's very much encouraging you know, for players to to give ideas. Like one of my favorite mechanics in Blades in the Dark is the Devil's Bargain, which is when you are going to make a roll, you can ask the GM to give you some kind of consequence that will happen no matter how the roll goes. And if you accept whatever bargain they offer you, you get a bonus die on your roll. But you also have to, you know, accept that consequence. And the book explicitly says, ask your players for ideas if you get stuck. Like, have them contribute. Which, like, in D&D, that generally doesn't happen. You know, it's like you, you, as the GM, you come up with all of the bad stuff that can happen to people. Monsters and enemies and traps and whatever. And then they roll dice. And if they roll poorly, that bad stuff happens. Right. It's much more of a conversation and a dialogue. And yeah, it it just, it had a lot of very cool mechanics. The Devil's Bargain is just one example of a lot of the stuff that I think Blades does really, really well that just made me be like, this seems like like it would be a very fun game to run. And then also, like I said, like the setting seemed very cool and the potential for the kinds of stories you could tell there seemed just seemed really interesting. And yeah, yeah, I, th- I think that that was a lot of it of just that was why I, I jumped on to wanting to GM rather than play in this. I've actually the game that we played last week was, I think, the second time I've ever played Blades <laughs> in the Dark. I have almost exclusively only GM'd it. <laughs> Well, it was delightful playing with you. I, I thoroughly enjoyed Minna running that for yeah, us. Yeah, it was it was a ton of fun. Yeah, that was great. I got to, uh, you know, cause a fog storm of ghosts. So. Yes, <laughs> that was extremely good. <laughs> so, you know, you talked about going back to your very early introduction to RPGs, having some of those negative, sexist, kind of creepy interactions, but they didn't turn you off which is so good. Yeah. (laughs) Has that experience or have other experiences shaped the way you play or the way you GM or the way you interact like out of out of actual game with your players in any significant fashion that you can really pinpoint? So I think probably the biggest influence on how I tend to approach RPGs as a player or a GM is fanfic. I have been writing fanfic since... God, what did I... I think I, I, I cut my teeth on Harry Potter when I was like 11 or 12. So I have been writing fanfic for majority of my life. Hmm. Uh, because I, like, if, if there's a piece of media, book, TV show, usually not movies. Movies tend not to be long enough to really hook me. But um, video games, books, movies, if there's something that grabs me enough... I, I, I need more of it. I need to keep telling the story. I need to spend more time with these characters. Um, so I just start writing about them because I don't want to be done with it. And I tend to approach RPGs as one of my favorite storytelling devices. It is a group of people coming together to tell a story in a really cool way. And I, I think that... You know, I know that's, I, I think that because I started, you know, kind of my, my very early start in fandom was in fanfic, that I just have this very story and character focused mentality. So yeah, I, I am, I'm that person where, you know, when somebody invites me to like, oh, hey, I'm starting up a campaign. Do you want to join? I just like, Two hours later, we'll send them a 40-page document with my character's backstory and, like, <laughs> detailed explanation for why they have ranks in every, you know, 
why they have all of these different skills. And here's a family tree going back four generations. And, you know, I'm, I'm that person. (laughs) (laughs) Some GMs really appreciate that. Some look at me like, I, I, it's been a day since I invited you. What is, (laughs) what's going on here? That's amazing, though, because I think that that fanfic, writing all of that fanfic must have given you such, such a strong base of how to come up with stories and how to continue stories. Because the stories that we tell in RPGs are are living stories. They're continuous. They change. They morph and as we move in them. And the ability to look at what happened in a story and think of what could happen next is so imperative to GMing and, and to playing as well to a certain extent that I think you probably really honed with <laughs> Yeah. Writing fanfic. Yeah, for sure. And now, like, I, I have merged those two things as, uh, in, I mean, really starting with my college group and going forward, a lot of the long running games that I've been in, I will either by myself or with other players write stories about kind of what happens off screen with my characters of like, you know, my my character and somebody else's took watch one night after like a really intense battle, like, let's write out what they talked about, stuff like that. So I've been very fortunate because I, I am in a group where I get to be a player rather than a, a GM all the time outside of the magpies. And that's a group where like everybody really enjoys doing that. So we just have this like massive library <laughs> <laughs> of stories that we've written for for our various games, which is really great for like, I, I really love doing that because it also helps kind of scratch that that itch of like, we can only play this once every two weeks because we are busy adults. Right. So in between the game sessions, we can kind of get some of that that RP goodness happening. I really love that because there's there's something really great about coming up with your own story of what happened to a character that you've been, I guess, living per se in in that world. And one of the things that I always like to do for my characters, I don't run it, write a ton of fiction about my characters in general, but when a campaign ends, I like to write what happened to my character after. Yeah. What happened? Like, even if it's just like, well you know what, Our, like, we're just too busy, we're not going to play anymore. There was no heroic ending to the campaign. There was no like big bad that we ended up confronting. It just it just ended. I'll still come up with what happened to my character afterwards because I'm like, oh, like I got attached. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I need to know what happens next. So I'm just going to write what happens next. <laughs> yeah, I, I've, I have done that as well for because I, I think it's it's fairly common in the RPG community for a campaign to kind of fizzle out like that for any number of reasons. I think scheduling tends to be the most frequent. I think at this point, it's it's started to even out a little bit. But for a very long time, it was like I had been in far more campaigns that just sort of faded out than I had that actually ended properly. Right. But yeah, I, I definitely agree with you there. Where it's like, but but I, I didn't I didn't finish their story. Like we didn't finish their story in the game. So I have to go over here and write it down so I can finish it. Yeah, I I feel that. Yeah. So let's step back to the magpies again, because, you know, we're just gonna we're gonna keep talking about all sorts of things. But the magpies is beautiful. Oh, thank you. Was there intention behind the players and yourself going at this podcast as an all women cast? Um, yes. (laughs) To be very blunt about it, yes. I basically had been thinking about wanting to do this podcast for for a while. And then finally, I think June or July of last year, finally was like, okay, I'm actually going to put in the work to start making this a reality. So like, I did some sort of initial planning of like, what I'm going to have to do to to get there. And like, step one was find players. (laughs) (laughs) So I basically I put together like, a Google form with a whole bunch of questions like, what's your availability? Um, what is your play style like? What kind of audio recording setup do you have? Just a bunch of stuff so that I could kind of really effectively screen people. But I like very deliberately made the choice of like, I, I had a lot of people apply. But when I was starting, it was like, I want this to be a cast of all women or, you know, all, all women and non-binary people. Because I hadn't really had an opportunity to, well, I, I had been, 
I was in a I was in a game that was all women previously, and that game kind of fizzled out. But it was really nice. It was a very nice experience, and yeah, I I wanted to. One, because I found it to be like a really positive experience for me and the other players having to be a group of all women. And two, again, sort of thinking about the the podcast angle that this is something I'm putting out there for an audience of like, I was sort of deliberately being like, okay, I want to increase the, the representation of women in this community. So yeah. It was a deliberate choice on my part, you know. It was it was fairly tough because I had a, a applications <laughs> from a lot of really great people, but I, I ended up with an awesome, awesome cast. Yeah, I I mean I I think so. I adore listening to all women, and so I I especially appreciate it when there are podcasts that do that deliberately. They set out deliberately to to be a group of all women and or non binary people as well. It it's a different story, and the story. It feels more me. Yeah. The choices that the players are making for their characters, I can almost see and understand where those choices come from because I can see myself, you know, like through certain experiences or certain directions or certain interactions are interactions that I could see myself making those similar choices or those similar those similar actions. And one of the wonderful things about the magpies being all women is I think there's sometimes an assumption about women that they can't be dark or lie or steal or like be part of criminals or be dirty, you know, like, yeah. like the world that is Duskwall in Blades in the Dark it's such a dark industrial fantasy that I think some people might find unexpected to find all women if they aren't women. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I definitely agree. And like, that that was an, another thing that kind of drew me to the setting is like, I love a good heist movie. Yes. <laughs> and this is a this is a game where every session is a heist movie. <laughs> That's that is the, the the kind of primary organizing thing is the score. Yeah. And yeah, like that's actually something that like we've kind of talked about as a group is that like I can't think of off the top of my head a heist movie that is all women. I mean, I guess what is it? Ocean's 8 is supposed to be happening at some point. Oh right. But that also is kind of like that's a little bit of a, you know, it's like a spin-off of yeah. <laughs> spin-off thing, you know. It's not something original. Yeah, it's a spin-off of a series that was originally 11 dudes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, like that that's something that we've kind of talked about and I I don't want to I don't want to give spoilers, but we, you know, we're we're in where we're recording, we're coming up towards the end of wrapping up season 1 and I'm very excited about where we're going to go narratively in season 2 because I think again it is the kind of of roles that women typically aren't shown playing uh in fiction just generally and I've really I've really adored that the assumption is is that because we are women we must want to play dainty flowers yes and I love it when I see women or hear women playing characters who just absolutely go in the opposite direction of the stereotype and the expectation by certain groups. Yeah. And I love that about the magpies. Yeah. And I one other thing that I, I sort of wanted to talk about with, with Blades, and you kind of referenced it being like a very dark setting, um, both, you know, metaphorically and literally as the setting does not have a sun um <laughs> but you know a lot of those really like gritty dark grim dark that that whole kind of genre of things almost always comes with you know that that nice thick veneer of sexism where just yeah. like you know women are treated like shit because it's a dark setting and that's how it is and there's nothing in the Blades in the Dark book about any kind of gendered expectations or roles or sexism or anything. But I made the like very explicit conscious decision and like spelled this out when I was explaining it to my players of like sexism, sexual harassment, they just they don't happen in this world. They're just things that don't exist. Homophobia, transphobia, nope. It's just they they are not present in this culture. And and I, you know, can even 
like the main quote unquote religion in the setting is called uh, the Church of the Ecstasy of the Flesh. And it's basically the idea that the the body is sacred and the the spirit world is is corrupt and tainted. This is a world where ghosts exist and have a tendency to eat people. So like that makes sense. <laughs> but right. I sort of like I'm looking at this and I'm like this is a world where like one of the main elements of the culture is about revering the body and wanting you to be comfortable in your body and treating your body well and ha making sure that you are experiencing pleasure in whatever way that happens to be, you know, good food, good drink, good sex, whatever. This isn't a setting where people are going to like have any problems with any of that stuff. Um, and I, I don't know how successful I've, I've necessarily been at this, but like I have tried to make it a much more gender fluid society where a lot of the traditional markers of, you know, femininity, masculinity are a little more blurred in this right. setting. Um, at least in the way that I am playing it or that I'm presenting it. Cause like I just. I, I like a lot of those kind of darker, grittier settings sometimes, but I really hate a lot of the other cultural baggage that gets yeah. hung on it. So with magpies, I was like, no, I'm not doing that here. I am, I'm very deliberately carving out this space where that is not something that anybody's ever going to have to worry about. And I think that John Harper did a good job in designing the world to allow for that. Yeah. That's one of the beautiful thing about RPGs. And as we take ownership over our stories and our worlds that we create is making it a place where those things don't have to exist. So, you know, what you said about homophobia and transphobia and, you know, racism and ableism, like that doesn't have to exist. Yeah. And I so appreciate that you're so deliberate about it. I wish that game design on a broader scope was more explicit about it. Yeah. I legitimately have in my game notes, I have a spreadsheet of most NPCs. I don't update it as often as I should because I sometimes forget, but I have a spreadsheet with a lot of my NPCs and, you know, it's stuff like name, you know, where they're from, what their job is. But then I, I mark, you know, what is their gender presentation? Uh, what pronouns do they use? Are they a person of color? Do they have a disability? And like, I will occasionally go back to that and check and be like, uh, you know what? I have not been like the last few NPCs I've mentioned. I haven't explicitly been mentioning like people of color or like one thing that I personally need to work on more is, uh, you know, introducing more characters with disabilities. You know, like I, I have, uh, Lonnie who, uh, is deaf. She's a, a reporter NPC, but I, I, I've had, and I've had a couple, I think other more minor background NPCs that I've, I've introduced who have a disability, but, that's something that like I am I've been looking at that spreadsheet and been like, you know what? I have been falling down in this area. I need to make more of a conscious effort to bring that into this world. Right. So yeah, like when when you know, you have people being like, "Oh, you have a you have a checklist." And like, "Yes, I do. I have a checklist." Yeah. And <laughs> you know, like cuz I I am a a white cis woman, you know, I I I you know, physically abled, don't really, I I don't have a disability. I need to like make a conscious effort to be cognizant of that stuff because it, it is not something that I am socialized to think about just instinctively. Right. So, you know, that's, that's something that I have very deliberately tried to do and tried to be very aware of as I'm, I'm building this world. And I think that's really important is to kind of strike away what society programs us to react and introduce because it would be so easy for you to just not describe. And that would be the default that society has drilled into you. And the fact that you take the effort to sit with your checklist and go, no, I'm going to make a point of having NPCs who use they them pronouns. And I'm going to make a point to have an NPC that the characters are going to regularly interact with who is deaf. Uh, I think that's that's a level of consideration and acknowledgement at the lack of representation in RPGs that is really appreciated and is really obvious. And so thank you for doing that. Yeah. Uh, I think it's really important. Yeah, I, I yeah, I just I, I hope that that's. You know, I'm glad to hear that that it is appreciated. I, I feel like the RPG community as a whole, like particularly from where I started, has gotten markedly better about yes. all of that stuff. 
Not to say that it is by any means perfect. There is still a lot of toxicity and really major issues around a lot of this stuff. But we're in a place where we can point out the toxic stuff and have it recognized as being toxic as opposed to being like, well, that's just how the hobby is. Yes, exactly. And I think that 10 years ago, the people who were pointing out the toxicity weren't, there wasn't that same kind of acknowledgement by the community of like, oh, you're right, that is toxic. Oh, you're right, that isn't okay. I mean, even as an example, seeing seen Dungeons and Dragons running a charity campaign to raise money for an LGBTQ youth yeah, organization yeah. with the ampersand of the Dungeons and Dragons logo having the pride flag is like something I never would have expected to see 10 years ago. Yeah, same, <laughs> same. Absolutely. And I mean, that that pride logo, like one of the main game developers for Wizards of the Coast for D&D has had that, you know, D&D pride logo as his Twitter icon for years. Yes, yeah, Which that's just Mike Merles, like, right? Yeah, I think so. I think so. Mm, yeah. I, I think there has been a tremendous amount of progress over the last few years. I think it says something about the community, especially because I feel like the intentions from indie RPG makers to include gender fluidity and gender expression and sexuality, I feel has really put these bigger companies to task about removing that toxicity yeah, and has really yeah. put them on task about being more inclusive because it's so easy to look at past D&D because it is like the most well-known RPG yeah. out there. It's really easy to point out their past faults. Like, Oh, yes. And I think these, these indie RPG makers have really pushed the bigger ones to acknowledge those toxic areas. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's absolutely been something that has, has bubbled up from grassroots. And I think, again, that's kind of been with the, the, the internet has kind of not 100% level the playing field, but like it has given these smaller creators who would never have been able to get a mainstream publisher to pick them up before. Now they can just create a PDF on their computer and put it up online, or they can have a Kickstarter and get enough money to actually self-publish their own book. And yeah. there's just been, you know, with that that kind of upswelling of all of these new RPGs in the scene, it's made the big names take notice, be like, okay, this is the kind of stuff that people want. So, you know, I think also like, one thing that I find really interesting about 5th edition of D&D is the – and I, I can't really speak to whether or not 4th edition did this because I'm not familiar with 4th uh, edition. But 5th mm -hmm. edition has a lot more very deliberate like character focus of like you pick a background and you're you're supposed to kind of like – at least do a little thinking about who your character is as a person, right. as opposed to a set of numbers that, you know, kills other sets of yeah. numbers. And I, I feel like that, you know, has to be in, in, in some small part influenced by all of these extremely narrative driven indie games where, you know, you know, you're not even using dice for a lot of them, um, where right. it's, you know, extremely focused on character and narrative and relationships and interactions. Yeah. And I think that RPGs, to me, the definition is is narrative and storytelling. It's not math. <laughs> <laughs> and so I think you're right. Like, the fact that 5e does kind of embrace that like background and you know what's your fault yeah yeah i was knew there was an aspect there's forgetting besides the backgrounds but yeah like yeah, you got your, it's your, not called fault i don't remember what they're called but there's like your ideal and you have a bond and it's like it's kind of forcing you to like the bonds especially i really love because it's like you are going to give the gm a minimum of one hook yes <laughs> to, exactly to pull your character along here which also for D&D, putting some of the work out of the GM's hands and yeah. into the player's hands is kind of nice. <laughs> yes. Yeah. D&D is a, an extremely intensive game to, to GM for. I have never GM'd it. And I, quite frankly, am far too intimidated to ever try. Yeah. Yeah. I've... I think my my successful run of GMing 3.5 was I did um, Expedition to Castle Ravenloft. Okay. Which is the like 3.5 version of Curse yep. of Strahd, which mm -hmm. it's a fantastic adventure. It's very, very good. There are like 18 million maps. 
<laughs> and I ran this game in Roll20. I ran this game in very, very brand new Roll20, so I had to make all 18 million of those maps by hand. Oh, no. <laughs> it was a rough time. No kidding. But I think the only reason that I was able to successfully get through that is because somebody else had written out the whole story already. Like, right. I, I added my own spin on things, you know, made some changes, added some stuff. But 90% of the work was already done for me. And but even doing that last 10% of prep was a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I I love D&D, but I, I don't know that I'd ever I might consider GMing a fifth edition game. But that's the other thing is like, much as I'd, I'd, I, I, much as I love D&D, there are so many other systems out there that I haven't ever gotten to play. Yes. Oh, exactly. So uh, on that note, what you talked about how you've got a ginormous bookshelf full of Kickstarter games that you have backed and haven't had the chance to play. Which one would you most want to play? Oh, geez. Uh, let me, because it's actually, I have, I have a lot more PDFs. Let's see here. What do I have? So I have a couple two-player games that I very much want to play someday. Um, Reflections and A Scoundrel in the Deep, which I am actually going to get a chance to play with Palomi. Oh, awesome. Yeah, she's coming to uh, Chicago over Memorial Day weekend, and we're going to record a bonus episode of The Magpies using kind of a reskinned version of Scoundrel in the Deep to fit the Blades in the Dark setting, and I am so excited. Oh, very cool. Scoundrel in the Deep, um, if you're not familiar with it, is a game that it is impossible to play over the internet because the central mechanic of the game is burning matches. Interesting. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I am not familiar with this game. Um, there's a, a very, very good uh, one-shot episode that uh, James did with Party of One. Oh, that's Jeff Stormer. Yes. Okay, thank you. I was like, <laughs> I was like, his name just evaporated from my brain. So yes, Jeff Stormer and James D'Amato on One Shot uh, did a playthrough of Scoundrel in the Deep on the One Shot Network. And it's... It's very, very good. Um, so I'm, I'm finally going to get to do that. But like Reflections, I've never gotten to do. Good Society, I'll probably get to play at some point. City of Mist <laughs> is another one I haven't done. Um, <laughs> I backed Starcrossed. I don't know if my my group here is going to go for it. They loved Dread. I ran Dread for my group here in person once, and they have been asking me when we can play it again. I don't know that I'd be able to get anybody in that group to go for Starcrossed, <laughs> which is a shame. Well, somebody posted on uh, – they, they basically came up with a way to use a, a D20 – to roughly replicate kind of the statistical curve of a Jenga tower. Oh, interesting. I'll have to see if I can find it again. But it was basically like trying to figure out a way to play these Jenga tower-based games online. Yeah, she basically just was like, the average Jenga tower falls after, you know, X and Y number of pulls. So if you, it was basically like if you roll a D20 and then every time you roll a number, you mark like, uh, uh, you know, just a tally mark. And when you get to five on any one given number, the quote-unquote tower falls. Interesting. So initially when you're rolling, like, you're going to be fine. But then as, like, you start rolling more and those tally marks start building up, right. it kind of creates that same sense of tension. So I haven't gotten to play yet uh, any kind of game with that mechanic. But I'm. It's it's very cool that somebody just like did the math on that and figured it <laughs> out. It's also a really good, like, accessibility thing because that is like an issue with those kind of Jenga-based games where it's like if somebody has any kind of manual dexterity issues or paralysis, like they cannot use the Jenga tower, but they might be able to roll a die or they might be able to use an app on their phone to roll a die. So it makes it a lot more accessible, which is cool. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. So for me, it's really important hearing all women groups because I don't get that in real life. Um, for you as the host running the magpies and being that representation of what an all women led game can look like, how do you feel about being that representation and why is that so important to you? Um, I mean, I, I feel weird saying like attributing it to saying that like I as an individual am that representation, like, cause I, I, I very much don't want it to be about necessarily me as a person because like i again like i kind of listed off sort of 
who I am as an individual and I've got a lot of privilege. I don't want it to come across as like, I have this checklist so that I can get ally brownie points. You know, like I, I am, I'm doing this because I had a lousy experience coming into RPGs. And I know that there are people out there who have even lousier experiences because of who they are. And the fact that who they are was not ever represented. And I want to be able to say, you know what? There is a space in this, in these stories for an interracial, you know, queer women couple where one of them is deaf. Like that, that is, there are people out there in the world where that is their truth. That is their life. And I want to be able to, in, in this, this, you know, small way that I can be able to say, if you're out, you know, if, if, if you are out there and you are into this hobby, you, you belong here. Right. You know, there, there were people kind of out ahead of me who did some of the work to make gaming a better place for me. So I want to turn around to people who maybe still aren't getting as much representation or support or whatever and be able to say, here, I'm going to push these gates open a little bit further for you. That's an absolutely marvelous thing to be doing. And it's admirable because, like you said, there were people who started pushing the doors open for us. And if we can push them open a little bit wider, then the next group is going to be able to push them out a little bit wider. Exactly. And then the next group, and then the next group, and someday, hopefully, there just won't be doors. Yeah. We'll all be in here at the cool party. <laughs> exactly. So thank you so much, Ree, for joining me and talking to me. This has been absolutely wonderful. Yeah, yeah. This is this has been very good. It, it's gotten me to think about a lot of stuff. I think that I, or at least it's gotten me to uh, articulate a lot of things that I, I hadn't really ever sort of clearly fleshed out. So yeah, this has been very good. I'm so glad. I, I so appreciate you and the work that you're doing. And anyone listening should absolutely check out the magpies because it's brilliant. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> Support for the I Am Here podcast, presented by RPG Casts, is made possible by listeners like you. You can help keep the show going, get sweet excess bonus content for as little as $2 a month when you become a patron on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash rpgcasts to check out exclusive rewards for patrons and make your pledge. I Am Here is a production of RPG Casts. The intro and outro music was composed by Emily E. Mayo. Special thanks to Peter Grelly for designing the graphic art and assets for both RPG casts and for I Am Here. Visit the website at IamHerePodcast.com for show notes, transcripts, and so much more. You can find more about RPG casts by going to RPGcasts.com and follow on Twitter at, at RPG underscore casts. Otherwise, thank you so much for listening to I Am Here. It means so much.